You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. And I'm Corinne Fay. I work on Burnt Toast and run Cell Trade Plus. I am super excited because today we are talking about Fat Talk. Yay! The book that Virginia wrote, which is officially out this week. And in celebration of that, I thought it would be fun to ask Virginia some questions about writing the book and that whole process. Because it has been a process. It has been a process. You have you have been along for a lot of the process. And um, I appreciate you. I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really excited to hear a little more behind the scenes. And I think our little bird toasties will, <laughs> will be excited too. Yeah, it's a little weird to be interviewed on your own podcast, but I'm, let's do it. I'm into it. This is going to be stuff you're not going to hear in the other media coverage. So... This is like burnt toast exclusive content. So this is your second book. Yes, it is. I'm really curious about how the idea for this one came about. So after I wrote The Eating Instinct, I was doing press and events and talking to people. And I was hearing a lot from parents in particular. It was a little surprising to me because I don't think of that one as a parenting book, although like my motherhood story is in it. But It's a lot of non-parenting stuff too, but that was definitely sort of who gravitated to the book. And I was hearing these questions over and over from folks that were like, what do I do about my kid and food and my kid and weight and what the doctor says and all the things we always talk about. And it kind of became clear to me after a while that people were really saying, I want my kid to have a good relationship with food. I want them to love their body. I don't want them to get an eating disorder, but I don't want them to be fat. And I just realized like, We can't have it both ways. You can't encourage a child to have a healthy relationship with food and body if we are only allowing certain bodies to have that. And so that's where I realized, in a way, the eating instinct did not go far enough. It started with food, which I think is the place a lot of people start with this work. But really what we had to get to is anti-fat bias. That's the bedrock of the whole conversation. And so that's when I was like, oh, I need to write a book for parents about anti-fat bias, like what it is, why you have it, how to unlearn it, how to raise kids in a world that throws so much of that at us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you wrote The Eating Instinct, and then you started working on this book. How did you start the writing process? Like, was there like a first sentence or first chapter you wrote? Did you make an outline first? Like, where does it all begin? So I actually tried to write a totally different book in between for a while. So that's something that I think only me and my agent know. I thought I was going to write a book about girl culture and girlhood Interesting. I don't really remember. It didn't work. So I spent a long time writing that proposal and I knew it wasn't going to work. Like I sent it to my agent and I love my agent. We have a great relationship. But when something's not working, she does not email me back super fast. And like some time went by and it was also COVID. I think I got it to her in like early 2020 and then the pandemic hit and everything was crazy. But she was like, yeah, this, this is not it. It's not hanging together as a book. There's no hook. And so then somehow... I'm trying to remember when I had the epiphany of like, oh, wait, it's fat talk. Like, that's the book. Or originally I was calling it fat kid phobia. But like, you know, that right. concept came to me. But that was some point in 2020. And of course, it was 2020. So I had, you know, zero childcare. I was potty training a two-year-old and house training a puppy. 
and trapped in my house with both of them. So, you know, the book proposal was like definitely happening around the edges of the chaos of COVID lockdown. But once this book came to me, it was so much clearer. It was funny. I had spent months slogging through the proposal for the idea that didn't work. And this proposal, I was able to, when we finally got some childcare later in 2020, just like bang out in like two weeks. It just like really came together fast. And I think that's often a sign for me that I'm like actually headed in the right direction if writing does not feel super slow and torturous. So then we sold that book right at the end of 2020, like December, January 2021, kind of around then was when I signed the contract. So in order to sell a nonfiction book, you write a very full proposal that includes an outline. So you kind of have to do an outline, whether you like outlining or not as a writer. It will probably not surprise people to know I do like outlining for big projects. Somewhat compulsively organized human being. Corinne knows there's a lot of spreadsheets in my life, (laughs) color-coded things. Really beautiful work. Yes. In Excel. Thank you. Yes. So, yeah, so you do have to do an outline. And I just want to say, like, writing a book proposal is the worst. It's the hardest, most horrible part of the process because you're basically trying to put together a whole book that you haven't researched yet. And so you don't actually know everything that you need to know. So it feels like you're making it up and there's a lot of imposter syndrome and just like really hating yourself. Because it was my second book, I did not also have to write a sample chapter. Usually you have to write a sample chapter as well. So that was nice. The first time around you write a sample chapter, but my agent was like, they know you can write a book now. But yeah, you have to write this whole overview that's basically explaining what the book is and who the reader is and why it matters and why now and all of these kinds of things. And then you have to do a table of contents and detailed chapter summaries. So I had done all of that. So then once I had the contract and it was like go time to start working on it, I did have the outline to work from. And so then I was basically taking it like chapter by chapter, except I always leave the introduction for last that I don't write until the very end. But so the first sentence of chapter one is the first sentence I wrote, which is very linear. There were other chapters where I like started it one way and then threw that out and found a different way. That definitely happens. It's not like so paint by numbers, but for getting it started, that line was really, really helpful. But then I was also doing all the reporting, finding the Mm. sources, doing all the interviews, And that was really different this time around because of COVID. I wasn't doing any in-person interviews, really. It was all over Zoom, which is such a different reporting experience after doing years of in-person reporting. But I kind of ended up really liking it. I could talk to way more people because I didn't have to travel to them. And I mean, unless people blur their background, you do immediately get dropped into someone's life in a nice way. Whereas if you meet them in a coffee shop or something, you don't always have that sense of them. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So like from January 2021 through June 2022, it was just like slogging through chapter after chapter, researching, writing, researching, writing. Yeah. Okay. Rinse, repeat. And while you're writing, do you have a spot that you like to write? Is it your office? Is it somewhere else? Dreamy Airbnb? God, I wish. No, (laughs) I am not that romantic writer. I've never been to a writer retreat. I would love to, but I feel like I'm just not cool enough for that. And plus, like, they don't usually involve child. They seem like something that's great for, like, single men. Folks know about good writer retreats for moms. Hit me up because I would go to one. But, yeah, no, I write in my office right here where I'm sitting talking to you. This is where it all happens. I... 
don't actually like to work outside of my office in my house. I have a funny video from midway through COVID of me like working on the couch because again, we had no childcare and mm. Beatrix, who was like two and a half, repeatedly closing my laptop saying, mama, no work, mama, no work. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> sobbing, like I have to work. <laughs> um, yeah. Funny memory wow. slash trauma, whatever. Anyway, um, so yeah, I prefer to work in my office and keep that division. But often because I'm with my kids after school, I am like then bringing my laptop downstairs to finish stuff in the living room while they're like getting snacks. And, you know, my boundaries are not perfect, but that's the idea. Yeah. And I do a lot of early morning writing too. I just find like I can get like 2,000 words written in like two hours in the morning if I start at like 5 a.m. And if I start at 9 a.m., the same 2,000 words will take me like three days. I don't Mm. understand what it is. Just so many more distractions and, yeah, something about that early morning time is helpful. And what about snacks? Any snacks that made Fat Talk possible? Chocolate chips, Giardelli, okay, yeah. semi-sweet chocolate chips, really by the bowl full, like really important <laughs> to my process. Beverages? Diet Coke, obviously. Oh, right. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> this book definitely ran on Diet Coke. Oh, my God. So much Diet Coke. Extra toasty Cheez-Its. You know, like when I'm in like intense, like head down book writing mode, like I don't have a lot of time for food prep. So it is very like yeah, grab and go. Oh, and here I have one on my desk right now. Uncrustables. Oh. It's <laughs> my little snack for Not later. Not just for kids. <laughs> no, I think Uncrustables are like the unsung genius like They're tasty. They're portable. They, like, very efficient. You know, if you like a power bar or, like, one of those sort of nonsense, like, an Uncrustable is the same concept. It's just peanut butter, so. Okay. I need to try. I need to try They're delicious. They're delicious. They're in, like, a little pillow of bread. What's not to love? Yum. Yeah. Sounds good. I feel like a really important part of Fat Talk is all the stories and interviews and anecdotes that are within the chapters. And I'm so curious about how those work. Like, how do you find people to interview? What are the logistics? You kind of mentioned Zoom. And is it ever so awkward? Yes, Because that's what I imagine it would be. (laughs) Yeah, it's really changed a lot over the years. This is like probably the aspect of my professional life that has been most impacted by the internet and the way we live now. Like when I started my career as a journalist, if you worked in women's magazines, finding, we called them real people stories, was like the bedrock of every feature. You always had to have your real people stories. So often, like Marie Claire or whatever, it was like sending a junior editor like me out into Times Square. Like there's a story I did. Oh my God, one of my real, real proud moments as a women's magazine story writer is my first cover line piece, which was I dumped him during sex, where I found a bachelorette party in Times Square to get their wildest breakup stories, one of which was the girl who broke up with her boyfriend during sex. And I I mean, I could see why that was a cover line. You know, it was very compelling. I'm buying that magazine. My editor was real happy with me. I mean, it fell apart fast in fact-checking because, like, she was sober when we had to call back to fact-check. I mean, we did manage to keep it, but I think we changed her name because the next day she was like, I do not want to be quoted telling that story. And I was like, why? I can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Like, traditional journalism was like that man on the street or drunk bachelorette on the street reporting. And obviously... 
like now I live in the woods, so that's not yeah. how my life works anymore. Thank God, honestly, that was not my proudest moment. So then it kind of shifted to doing a lot of call outs on social media. And it is weird because you feel like you're casting almost sometimes. So you're like, yeah. I want to write a story about this. So I need to find someone who's experienced this. And you have to think how to word the call out in order to connect with people who will resonate with the story, but not so that you're like manipulating who will respond to you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so it is like you put a lot of thought into how to like sort of explain the story in vague yet enticing terms. I don't know. It's right. very strange. But for this, yeah, it was a lot of me posting. So I would do, obviously, on my own social media, I would put the callouts in burnt toast. So there's like a lot of burnt toast mm-hmm. readers who contributed stories to the book. Oh, cool. But also like Facebook mom groups, you know, different health at every size or fat activism groups on Facebook were really useful. Like just trying to like find the forums where people, eating disorder recovery forums, that kind of thing, where people who would resonate with the topics are already talking about this stuff and might have stories that they want to share. But it is interesting because some people love talking to a journalist and are really excited to open up their lives. And some people sort of think they like the idea. And then when you actually get on Zoom or on the phone with them, it suddenly feels incredibly invasive, which is very valid because it is very invasive. You know, it's really tough. So I think that's the awkward part. I really care about my sources and I really care about them feeling safe and feeling good about sharing their story, especially in a book like Fat Talk. I even care about that drunk bachelorette and I should not have interviewed her. That was a violation of trust between us, uh, having met in the bar that night, especially for the type of reporting that this book is, where I was often going back and having multiple conversations with a family, interviewing different members of a family, kind of getting to know them over a few months. Like I feel really protective of them. And I have to balance that with, I need to ask certain questions or pull out certain details in order for the story to work and make sense to the reader who doesn't know them, you know, and needs to be brought into sort of this full picture of their lives. So it is a weird tension. And I don't know, I just feel like the best you can do is just trying to make clear that you are trying to do justice to their story. It usually helps for folks to care about the issue and want to help raise awareness, you know, but there's been times in my career where I've been like, yeah, that was our goal, but I don't know that we achieved it. And you still had to tell this really personal story. Yeah. So the other thing that we did in this book was we changed the names of all the kids and any grownups affiliated with the kids, unless they were someone who had already been public with their story, like in a different article or something. Yeah. Because I just really felt, and my editor really agreed with this too, that, you know, if you're 14 and you talk to me about your eating disorder, that doesn't need to show up in your Google results 10 years from now. Totally. And so then we ended up even changing names of people who probably didn't care, didn't even have like a super personal story. But I was like, let's just do it across the board and protect people. And I feel good about that. When you go into interviews with these people, like, do they know what the book is about? Like, are you like, I'm writing a book about anti-fat bias? Or are you just like, I'm writing a book about food? Like, do they know your perspective? I feel like that was important for people to understand because this is a book that will get some pushback. I mean, it just got a great review in the Washington Post, which is so lovely. And then there are 800 just garbage comments in the comment section, just like... You know, total dumpster fire of comments. So I did want people to understand, like, this is a book that brings out 
anti-fat trolls. And yeah. again, that was another reason for changing names, right? Like the last yeah. thing I want is any of those people finding these kids or their parents who have been through enough yeah. and bringing that to them. So I would always give a little spiel and like sometimes send links to my previous work and my other book. And that's where I think like, again, the sort of traditional journalism rules are like, be super impartial and reveal nothing about yourself and be this like, yeah. blank slate for your sources. And in this day and age and with this kind of project, I feel like that is ethically dubious. I think that journalism can have a perspective. Certainly the journalism I do is activism journalism, kind of a hybrid approach, and that people can understand that. I mean, not every source agreed with me, yeah. for sure. Um, and there was even one woman who we had one interview where she was really you know, eager to dismantle diet culture and talk about how it had impacted her life and how she didn't want to pass it on to her kids. And when I circled back to her months later, she was like, I'm taking my child to a weight loss clinic. She wow. was in a totally different place with that. And yeah. that's really heartbreaking, but that's her story and her right, of course. Now that the book is out there, do you have a favorite chapter? That is really hard, Corinne. That's like a very hard, that's like, do you have a favorite kid or a favorite book? Okay. Okay. I don't know. Do you have a favorite chapter? I mean, I would have to revisit the table of contents, but there's definitely like stories that I read that have really stuck with me. I'm curious which one. Definitely the one about the parents who are like locking up Oreos. Yeah, the lockbox. Yep. I have spent a lot of time thinking about those kids and that family. That family was really amazing to work with. They were really open. You know, I got to interview the mom, the dad, and both kids and yeah. stayed in touch. And that taught me a lot working with them. I, I feel like I learned a lot. That is a favorite chapter. That's the Snack Monsters and Sugar Addicts chapter. I also really love chapter 11. I got taller and gymnastics got scarier about oh. anti-fatness in youth sports and dance. I liked that one too. That one was really good. I was really nervous to write it because I did feel like I had to check a lot of my own biases as someone who hates mm. sports and never <laughs> played sports and never wanted to play sports and don't really understand the function of sports in our society as a force for good. So I did have to sort of dig deep because I just want to be like, it doesn't matter. Just don't play sports. They're terrible. But yeah. I realize that's not where most people are on that topic. And so to really think about like, okay, what do sports offer kids in terms of relationships with their bodies? Like what's positive about it? Oh, wow. Fat kids are actually missing out on a whole ton of things because of this. And also let's talk about all the toxicity and the hustle culture and deciding that kids' bodies are this, you know, tool for coaches to manipulate however they want. I mean, God, it's yeah. just like, there's so much there. Were you a sports person? I don't know this about you. I played like a few sports, at least at the beginning of high school. And then I kind of dropped out of them all by my senior year when I was just like, I'm more of like an arts person. But I do kind of regret it because I do feel like you get a lot from sports. Like, I feel like there's like camaraderie and also just like, yeah, like the opportunity to find joy in like moving your body, mm -hmm. which I think I did and like really lost for a while. Yeah. And I don't think I ever experienced that as a kid because I was yeah. unathletic and sort of self-labeled as unathletic. Yeah. And then reinforced as unathletic. You know, gym class was just a torture zone to me. Like I was just yeah. mortified to be there all the time from really early on, from like first and second grade. I can remember just being like, 
horrified at being in gym class. Yeah, there's some really young kids who go to the gym I go to, and I think they work with like some high school programs. Oh, interesting. And I always just wonder like, oh, what if I had discovered this when I was it might have been amazing instead of 37? I do feel like the focus on team sports is really misguided in that way because so few mm-hmm. adults can play team sports. Yeah. And if we're really trying to foster a love of movement for kids, shouldn't we be focusing on things that you do in an individual way that you can easily do as an adult, you know, right. like that's accessible? Or team sports that are like for the joy of it rather than like, can we beat the right. next town over right. and right. anyone who can't run a mile in six minutes is going to be caught yes. and you should be barfing after every race or whatever. There's a yeah. funny thing. It's not in that chapter. Actually, it's in the dad's chapter, but one of the dads I interviewed talked about being a wrestler in high school mm. and how to make weight, they would chew tobacco and spit because if you could spit enough, you could like lose water weight. And I was just like, I mean, if there was ever an example of how youth sports are not centering children's health, (laughs) because this was like a totally fine practice, like his teachers would be like, great, just go sit in the corner. You got to spit because we got to go to state. Okay, but back to the book. What about other highs and lows of writing Fat Talk? Were there times where you were like, this is amazing. I can't believe I (laughs) am doing this. And I'm sure there were also times where you were like, I'm giving up. More of those, I think. (laughs) I feel like book writing is a little bit, I don't love all the like book writing motherhood metaphor stuff, but like it's a little bit like childbirth where I think I've blacked out a lot of it Mm. because it's somehow just like I am like talking to you about the schedule and I'm like, how is I getting that done? I don't understand. Yeah. Chapter one was really hard to write. Chapter one is the longest chapter in the book. Folks are going to have heard it on last week's podcast because we're doing the audiobook excerpt. And it was a lot of reporting. And it was really when I like sat down and wrestled into the ground the arguments about weight and health and like how the childhood obesity epidemic is in many ways a government and media creation. And I think I was really afraid to wrap my head fully around all of those arguments before I did that chapter. And then once I did it, and it was like the first draft of it was like 20,000 words long. It was like so long. Wow. And I was like, all right, we got to write it in a little. And some of this is actually chapter two. But I remember just feeling like, okay, no, I can get through the rest of this book. I think for so long, for so many of us, as you work your way through being anti-diet and getting into fat liberation and all of this, like there's these like third rail arguments that you're always afraid to have where you kind of free, I mean, people say this, like, what do I say when someone says, but what about health? What do I say? And that was a chapter where I was like, I have to look at all of those and figure out how to knock them all down. And I wasn't sure I could before I got into it. So that was a high. The lows were more related to, like, the stress of writing a book on top of running a newsletter, on top of, I think, for at least the first chunk, I was still freelancing And having two children who I'm supposed to be raising, the time management stuff, there was like a real kind of womp womp moment. So I turned in the manuscript, the first draft of the manuscript at the end of June 2022. And I thought I wouldn't have to start revises until September. So I was like, I'm going to have my summer. It's going to be so chill. This is great. I can just like come up from air. I was very burned out. It had been like so much work to get that book written. And then they were like, so Labor Day for revises? And I was just oh. like, oh. 
oh my God, I have to get back into it so fast. And so I had like a week of like decompressing before my editor sent the draft back and was like, okay, now we need you to. And thankfully her notes were pretty minimal. And then that was like when I had you read it and you gave me like your notes were excellent. And Amy read it and gave me a lot of notes. And my friend, Lynn Steger-Strong, who's a brilliant novelist, read it. And that was when I was taking everybody's notes and trying to like put it all back together. And it wasn't torture, but it was, I was just like aware of being very at capacity at that point. So that was a little bit of a loop. I think people don't understand book writing is, I think you think of it as like just writing the book and done, but there's like all the pre-writing and proposal, then there's writing, then there's revising. And then pretty much as soon as you're done with revising, it's time to start planning for the launch. It's been quite a process. Yeah. What about anyone whose work really influenced this book? I mean Every major fat activist, for sure. You know, Marilyn Wan, we've talked about our love for her. You know, all the sort of like old school Deb Burgard, Reagan Chastain, Aubrey Gordon, obviously, Sabrina Strings, Deshaun Harrison, Marcel Mercedes, et cetera. Like, you know, I just feel like there's just a list of people that I'm just like constantly learning from. In terms of like thinking about the structure and the writing of the book, I think Peggy Orenstein's journalism is the Mm -hmm. model that I use a lot. Her Girls and Sex and Boys and Sex were so well done. And the way she balances narrative and argument is something I've really studied a lot and try to model my work on. Um, I think it's really easy for these books to either be all polemic and rant or very research-heavy and kind of dense and hard to get through. And I think what I bring to the table is the narrative piece. So I think a lot about how to like weave it all together. And yeah, Peggy's work is a big influence on me for that. Yeah, that makes sense. If you could ask one person in the world to read this book, who would it be? I feel like it's Michelle Obama. Oh, I love that answer. But I think she's going to be mad at me about chapter one. She is sort of like the most well-known and obviously the person with the most influence in terms of like progressives who centered on childhood obesity as their fight when they should have been fighting poverty and inequities. And I talk a lot about how that contributed to all of the fear-mongering around childhood obesity that we all, you know, grew up with and that parents today carry so much around. I also really try to do justice to the fact that her own body has been the source of so much scrutiny and racism and anti-fatness. And this is something my sensitivity reader, Dom, was really helpful in making sure I really pulled out in the draft. So I hope that comes across because I think it makes sense with the narrative that she grew up with around bodies and then the way her body and her daughter's bodies were like products for our country to dissect was horrific. And also... I would love her to keep pushing on this. Yeah. I see it now in her new book, the way she still talks yeah. about bodies. And, the, you know, there's a very, like, girl boss kind of attitude towards it that I'm just like, oh, we're not quite there. And, Michelle, you could do so much good on this. Yeah. I would just love her to become an anti-fat bias activist, you know? All right. Well, as we sort of discussed, there's a big part of the book beyond writing, like, which is editing and Is there anything that didn't make it into the book that you were really sad about leaving out? The funny thing is, when you're writing and revising, you do write, like, like I've written thousands of words that didn't make it into this book. And I always copy and paste and drop them into another document because at the time, I'm like, this is so important and I can't believe I'm cutting it and I'm going to need it. 
And it's just so painful to me to take this out. So it's over here. And now I cannot tell you one thing that is in that folder. Like, I have no idea. I have no idea. So I know I cut some stuff that felt super important, and now it's just gone. But what I will say was harder was I did interview lots of people whose stories didn't make it into the book, like didn't even make it into the first draft. And I do think about some of those, like there are a lot of those narratives that I would have loved to include. And I just, I interviewed this really great trans dad about his body journey and how diet culture shows up in the trans community and his relationship with his kids and all of that. And it just didn't end up, the dad's chapter ended up being about straight white dads. Like I wanted to really Mm. deal with that sort of like cis male Peter Atiyah, like hyper macho narrative. Yeah. And I didn't find another space to get into trans dads. And it felt weird to do like a chapter just on trans. And also that's, you know, that's not my story to tell. And so maybe there's someone else who should do that story. But Anyway, that's one interview I was just thinking about the other week. I was like, oh, I didn't get him in. And that was such a great conversation. And it did influence all of those conversations. There's a mom in Indiana I'm thinking about, too, who didn't make it in. And there was fascinating stuff about her childhood growing up poor and food insecure. And I don't know, all these different stories that, like, I feel like the essence of them still really informed the book. But you just, you know, this is a really long book. It's like 120,000 words. and If I had included everyone I wanted, it would have been like 200,000 words and no one would read it. Yeah. Don't be deterred. It's an easy read. Thank you. I feel like I appreciate it. It moves along. It's a a zippy read, right? It's a zippy read. There we go. Okay. Well, I almost hate to ask you this, but how long before you start thinking about your next book? Or are you already thinking about it? No. (laughs) It's like asking a graduate what they're going to do after they graduate. Not okay. Not okay with that question. (laughs) My children feel really sorry for me that I don't write children's books, and they bring Mm. this up often. And in fact, at dinner the other night, Beatrix said to me, are there no pictures in Fat Talk? And I said, there are no pictures. And she goes, and there are no pop-ups? And I was like, there are no pop-ups. And she was like, really? Not one pop-up? Maybe a little (laughs) pop-up? She was so sorry for me. I she, love that so much. Well, she just made a book in kindergarten mm-hmm. that she brought home to show me that it does have pictures and a pop-up page. Just a suggestion, Mom. Yes, yeah, she just really wanted it to be clear that, like, it's nice that I have this book, but, like, she has published her pop-up <laughs> yeah. with pop-ups. And, like, I just haven't quite achieved that yet. Yeah. Is this your way of telling us you're going to write a children's book with pop-ups? Uh, I think I'm absolutely not going to do that. Uh, (laughs) But I will say one of the questions I get asked most often is like this sort of like gap in kids let. I think it's improving, to be honest. I mean, I think we've had lots of great children's and YA authors on the podcast that we are getting more and more options. But I haven't seen like a fat talk for kids. I don't think it would have pop-ups. I think it would probably be for older kids. But that's something I've like pondered. Interesting. How to like engage kids directly in questions of anti-fat bias. I love that idea. Yeah, but I've gotten no further with it. And I don't know. I mean, that's also like writing for kids is a whole different genre and skill set. And I don't know if that's, yeah, so... Bottom line, no, I have no ideas. There's like things kicking around. My daughter would like a pop-up book. That's as far as I've gotten. Bottom line, please leave me alone. (laughs) It is a terrible question. I know, I'm sorry. I'm I'm just trying to get through this. I don't know, I don't know. 
Yeah. It took me a while after the eating instinct to find this book. Like I'm gonna just trust that the next one will show up eventually. Well, I can't wait to hear what it is when it happens. Eventually, somehow, with or without pop-ups. Thank you for doing this. This was really fun. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and leave us a rating or review. These really help folks find the show. And thank you so much to Corinne for doing this episode. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul-Smith, except today it was produced and hosted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Dana Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks so much for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism.